Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, April 10th, 2015, and this is the Executive Girlfriends Group Show. And we have with us today Linda Hill, who's one of the co-authors of a really spectacular book on innovation called Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation. Linda, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, it's so great to have you on, and I I was sharing with you before we started the show that when I got the book in the mail, I was leaving on a business trip, and uh, as I normally do, I open the book with pen in hand because I love underlining in the books, and quite often I'll start taking the material right away, uh, which I did in this book uh, as well, of actually writing things in the back on those blank pages that we always wonder what they're for. Well, I know what they're for, (laughs) and that's taking the book and and making your own practical plan for it. So, uh, Linda, I I love to hear about our authors. So, you know, I'd love for you to share your personal story, and then I'd like to hear a little glimpse about your co-authors as well. So I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I am an army brat. <laughs> you can go back as far as you want. Our well, listeners love to hear the personal stories uh, because usually our authors aren't authors for a living. Many of them are keynote speakers and coaches and consultants and professors. So how you got to where you are is really what they want to know. All right. Well, I, I, as I said, I'm an army brat, so I grew up uh, moving almost every two years of my life. I ended up uh, going to high school in Bangkok, and I spent a number of years in Germany. And when I was 14, we visited India. And I had parents who were very, very curious people, probably particularly my mother in some ways. And so I think that as a consequence of that, I've always been interested in and curious about that which is different and learning about that which is new. So I grew up that way, and I must say when I went to college, I don't know that I knew much about anything really. I ended up studying what is uh, referred to as comparative psychology, and that's really you're sort of looking at different species and how they learn. So I studied learning theory. My very first research project as a freshman in college was about brainstorming. And I bring that up because now um, I'm finally writing about innovation. So this interest in creativity, this interest in diversity, probably goes way back in some ways. Went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, studied, uh, got a Ph.D. in behavioral sciences. And I will tell you that when I graduated or was about to finish my Ph.D., I had a panic attack because I realized I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And fortunately <laughs> for me, for the right reasons, and I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say I was very strategic about this, but I married my college boyfriend, and he was here finishing up medical school and lived in Boston, and I needed to live in Boston. So to make a very long story short, met someone at a social event who said, have you ever thought about the Harvard Business School as a place to work? Because I had studied, uh, behavioral sciences is really an interdisciplinary kind of degree, and I had studied organizations or taken my exams in that, and he said, maybe you'd like to work at the Harvard Business School. And I thought, well, there's an odd choice. But I ended up uh, meeting some people from the Harvard Business School and said, maybe you would like to talk with us. You know, we have an organizational group, et cetera. And I ended up being, meeting John Cotter, who is certainly a person who's very prominent in that field. Right. And I ended up deciding to do a postdoc with him for a year because, frankly, my husband was going to be finishing up what he was doing, and then we could move together. And I thought, I'll stay for a year. And here I am, 30-some years later, 
still here because I came here and found that it was a place I adored, and fortunately they liked me. And I took a year and a half of learning more about business before I became a professor and took courses, et cetera. And I'd always done some consulting. So to say one of my students gave me a poster he made for me that said she came to the Harvard Business School for love. And uh, I think I love that poster. And he hmm. he uh, thought it helped him understand that we don't make you know, work or career choices. We make life choices. And you know what? And making and And so that's how I got where I am today. And it's interesting. So I will say that really, what's something that's really shocking and may not look obvious is that I study three things, and I'll get off of who I am. I actually, what I study is how people learn to lead. Right. And I also study what it takes to implement global strategies, particularly in emerging markets. And I finally study leading innovation, those three areas. I try to look at them together. But it's funny that I'm now, in a way, finally writing the book <laughs> or have finally written the book with some colleagues that in some ways is I've been worrying about and wondering about since I was a freshman in college. So have, wow. have patience with yourself. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I would well, say. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you, you have written a, a couple of other books, uh, mm-hmm. Becoming a Manager and Being the Boss, yes. which uh, you know sound very, very tactical to me, but uh, from just that introduction that you gave, I am quite certain that even those books are strategic in nature. So uh, strategic leadership and innovation, I mean, those are all things I love. And, you know, you come from this academic side of things, which I, I also have an odd love uh, for because I'm I'm actually a college dropout. Oh. Uh, but I have uh, become, for the last 19 years, I've had my own strategic consulting firm, and I'm one of the top consultants in my industry. And so I always laugh um, when I, I – quite often will work with major consulting firms, Bain and, uh, you know, uh, in the old days, Ernst & Young, who I guess became Capgemini. Mm-hmm. And they would call me and say, you know, we're looking for a new leader of our travel practice. And, you know, would you be mm-hmm. interested? And I said, well, yes, I'd be very interested, but I know you wouldn't be interested in me. And they'll say, oh. well, why? Yes, of course. You know, we've looked at your work. And, you know, here I don't have the educational credentials to back it up. But they would still pay me you know, obscene amounts of money by the by the day and by the hour. So that was all fine. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I will tell you, I flunked kindergarten, and I do not have a high school. <laughs> I do not have a high school diploma. So we're all buddies. Oh my gosh, I love it. I yeah. love it. But I tell you what, this this book and this topic of genius and innovation. Uh, is so close to my heart. I'm an in- inventor at heart and, and mm. am constantly starting new companies, and I'm just about to launch uh, a major uh, new technology that's really going to change the way travel has been done, which you know has been my passion for uh, the 34 years I've been in the travel industry. But, Linda, mm. before we start about uh, to talk about the book, I'd really love mm. to hear the story of how you and Greg met and, and the roles that your other co-authors played. So actually, uh, that it's, and, and, it's, and like with all things, you just have to be open to, to experience that, or experiences that you're having. I was actually at a company getting ready to meet with the CEO of this company, a, a biotech company, to ask, if, um, to ask him if he'd be willing to allow me to write a case about him and the company. And on the same bench, pretty much, was sitting Greg, who was waiting there to have a job interview. And we just began to start chatting to get with each other because, you know, we were both sitting there waiting. I think he was running a little bit late. And Greg told me he was at Pixar, and I explained why I was there. And he said, you know, if you really are interested in innovation, 
you, you should go study Pixar. I'm, I'm not leaving Pixar thinking of leaving Pixar because it's a bad company. I just think I'm looking for a new challenge, et cetera. And that's why I'm here. And I really, I'd set you up with people and, you know, let's do that. So anyway, to make, again, a very long story short, I, in fact, uh, you know, I ended up going and talking to the CEO, did end up writing the case. Greg actually took what he calls as his biotech vacation and worked there for a little bit. But he wrote a number of years later, and I, I ended up writing the case, and I put Greg in it. Should they hire Greg? That was the decision point of the case, actually. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, I mean, the case was being taught, et cetera, and Greg once came to be a visitor at MIT where he had gone to school because they were teaching the case. And he said, well, let me go back by and see Linda because I hadn't, we really hadn't connected so much. And then, as they say, the rest is history. I had gone to Pixar. We did, I'd seen it when he was still there. We decided we went back, um, Emily and I at that point, and when we went to see Pixar again, based on you know his saying, come back and see it, I'm, I'm back, we um, ended up, and I'll come back to Emily in a minute, we ended up deciding that we should ask Greg if he'd like to write this book with us, and he agreed to. And as you may, as I, we were talking earlier, Greg was actually worked with Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs had asked him to go to Pixar and help grow Pixar. So Emily, the other person who was with me, Emily Truelove, she was Emily Stecker at the time. She wasn't married yet. I had asked Emily to join me to be a full partner on writing this book because I knew that we needed to have the millennial perspective in uh, in our research. And she was uh, my research associate, had just hired her, very talented, though. And I I decided, you know, you take a bet on people. We just hit it off. So. And I said, Emily, you need to be a full co-author with me on this and collect the data and, 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 and not, not be, if you will, my RA, sort of helping me do something, but really put your own voice and right. who you are in this. So she did that. Then we added Greg. And then, as you, you mentioned, I've written other work. So Kent joined us as well. Kent and I had written a book or were writing a book called Being the Boss at the time. And Kent, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, but we, are, were born, we were all born in four different decades. Kent just turned 70. So he kind of grew up in more um, traditional organizations, if I can, yes. I don't know how to put that. And we thought yeah. we'd be Command the perfect team. Command and control team. style leadership. Yes, and, and you know what? He and I think very differently. Um, if anything, I, he's probably a more linear think, thinker. I'm a circular one. So the four of us really, we, in some ways we worked on both books together but it turns out that greg and emily didn't really write so much on being the boss but we but we kind of were working on these two projects simultaneously and they're 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 actually quite interrelated but uh that's how we all came together very very interesting and and so what what was the the one thing you wanted people to take away from this book well you know it's funny so for me uh, even though I actually have done a lot, I've always done a lot of work with people who define themselves as being creatives or innovative, innovators, and I've always done a lot of work in innovative organizations since day one as becoming a professor. So I will say that even though I had never systematically stepped back and written about what it means to lead innovation, I always worked either consulting and research with individuals who are engaged in these kinds of activities. And about, I guess, in the, around the year 2000, if you can believe, you know, if you remember, we were all waiting for the new century, right. I was asked in my role as the chair of the leadership initiative by our dean at the time to make sure, are we really exposing our MBAs and executives to what they need to know about leadership? Linda, that is something that, that's one of, one of my responsibilities to think about that. So I said, we all know that innovation matters a lot and, and everyone's talking about it more not just about execution, so let's see, are we really helping our leaders learn how to innovate? 
And I went to look at the literature. As a good academic, I love libraries, and and obviously I have lots of colleagues who study innovation and leadership here. And it turned out, much to my surprise in some ways, is that the literature on innovation is quite separate from the literature on on leadership. And very few people actually look at the connection between the two. Right. You're you're so right. And it's mostly because people who study innovation are often economists or sociologists, a lot of economists. And the people who study leadership are more micro, you know, look at the individual more, I don't know, social psychology-ish or whatever. So what happened, I'm an ethnographer. I use the methods of anthropology to do my work. So I look at a phenomenon. And so because of the way I do my work, I actually look at the leader as they are building and or doing this innovative stuff. And so I, I, I actually concluded there was this gap. There was this hole that needed to be, you know, we needed to fill it so that I could answer the dean's question properly. And I found myself realizing I needed to do a systematic study, if I could, to understand what is leading innovation about. I began to panic as I began to collect the data <laughs> because I realized that a lot of what we were doing and telling people about leadership was not necessarily looking like it was going to be consistent with what we were finding as we were collecting our data, <laughs> right. which is why we wrote Being the Boss. Because being the boss has a different way of proposing of how you think about leadership that actually is consistent with what we ended, we were beginning to find with regard to innovation. So for sure, we all know that there's not one best way to lead. So I am very privileged to be a protege of John Cotter. I'm sure, pretty sure he'd be comfortable with me saying that. And I was also a protege of Warren Bennis, who both helped us understand the distinction between leadership and management. Right. Leadership being about leading change and management being about you know dealing with complexity. Right. Are, are right. And it turns out, though, that innovation and leading innovation is different from leading change. So as I began to see that, that's why Kent and I and Greg and Emily, as I said, were also looking at what we were finding. We thought we need to talk about leadership differently. And so in that book, we talk about the three imperatives of leadership. And there's nothing inconsistent about those three imperatives and what we were finding with regard to leading innovation. So I, I think that um, that that was unsettling because for years I you know I've been talking to people about about <laughs> leadership, and and indeed you do need to know how to lead change in the way that in that in the in the way that that Warren and um, and John talk about about leadership and that's very important visionary leadership. But by definition, if you're trying to innovate, it turns out. You know, in some ways, you don't have a vision necessarily, as many of the leaders told us, because it's breakthrough, it's cutting edge, and you don't know. So it's not about having a vision and communicating that vision and encouraging people to, or inspiring people to want to fulfill that vision. That's not what innovation is about, or, or building an innovative organization. You can use that approach to do it once or twice, and you may be truly an individual genius or a Steve Jobs or whomever it might be. Um, to get that done, but, you know, lightning doesn't strike all that often for most of us, and most innovation doesn't happen that way. Well, I loved uh, in the beginning of the book where you, uh, you're you actually defining what, what uh, this whole issue of collective genius is, but mm-hmm. you talk about combining, uh, in, in many cases, separate slices of genius that may occur in individuals or in pools of individuals into a single work uh, that, mm-hmm. that is defined as collective genius. But the next sentence is what you just talked about, which is creating and sustaining an organization capable of doing that again and again. And, and then on the next page, you, you talked about the difference between being willing to innovate and mm-hmm. being able to innovate. And I know in yeah. my own industry, I've been um, – 
a, a vocal uh, critic. I, I was trying to think of a nice way to say this, uh-huh. but a, a very, very strong critic of the lack of innovation in my industry. And again, I think we've got lots of people who are willing to innovate, but one of the things stifling their ability to innovate is the way companies are funded today. And so many companies in our industry have uh, had private equity come in, and they've uh, what once was this entrepreneurial spirit has been stifled by the quarter-to-quarter uh, focus on profit. And yeah. that that uh, you know if they can't innovate in the quarter, you know they don't know how to manage that across uh, you know the 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 year's results. So you know I'd love to hear, uh, and I'm jumping way ahead no, no, in the topic, fine. but but I just mm-hmm. wanted to make that observation because I I've seen that throughout my entire career, big companies, small companies. Um, but you know, uh, uh, again, I want to get back to uh, to talking about this whole definition and let you uh, chime in on that as well. Well, I want to say that actually, what I'm working on now are two things, and maybe this I don't want to jump ahead too much. But I was <laughs> asked uh, I was asked by a group at Bloomberg to talk about the relationship of of the board to innovation, mm. and I ended up giving a presentation called you know Our Boards Really Friendly to Innovation. And I'm now working on a research project and collecting data on whether or not they are or not. And I think many boards are not very friendly to innovation. And what's very worrisome is if the board isn't friendly to innovation, you can believe it's not going to happen. And part of that relates to what you're describing, the pressures that organizations feel to uh, deliver, you know, uh, short-term delivery. And we have to remember that most breakthrough innovation takes time. And, And again, so even at, at Pixar, it took them 20 years to create the first full-length computer-generated movie. Hmm. Now, that's very mainstream today. Or one of the examples in the book that we talk about is when Google was trying to develop a new storage system for YouTube. It really took them almost two years working, in their words, at breakneck speed to come up with the right solution for that. Right? So I think we forget that, that there is some, there's both patience and urgency required for innovation. But right. there are a number of reasons why I think, and I don't think that boards aren't well-intended. I think they are well-intended, and they do want innovation. Right. But there's a well, lot about. I, I'd how, like to delve into that just, just uh, yep. because we're just about to start a new series about boards and mm. and specifically women on boards huh. and company performance when uh, when they have uh, a larger number of women on the board. So I would love to know if your data gathering and your study is looking at that dimension of whether companies that have more women on the board are more innovative, because huh. I suspect. That might be the case. You know what? I don't know that we have that. I will. I can add it. We're just now co- starting to collect the data, and there's no reason why we can't look at uh, the gender mix. So I'm, I'm writing a note to myself to make sure we do that. As a matter I of fact, I would love I'm, to have yeah. you uh, back on when you get that information okay. back. Because I'm, I'm writing you know, my again, notes. We know that there's empirical evidence that companies that have more women on their boards, and of course, uh, in in the C ranks of their management team, that they are more profitable than their counterparts that do not. Yes, I, so, I'm very embarrassed to say I just heard, uh, I was at a talk where um, one of the women who wrote a book on this topic, I guess she's now, there's our new book, The Confidence Code. This is terrible that I'm not recalling the exact title. Wouldn't want someone to do that to me. But she, the book before that was one in which they actually did document what you're describing. Right. About, uh, oh gosh. Uh, anyway. Yes, but, but I will, then, I will put if that we down. knew that, then we could link mm-hmm. profitability and innovation in a different uh, way. 
And I think that yeah. could be really interesting. Yes, and I think the, as you well know, and this this is goes to the theme of the book in part, is that we all know that just having diversity doesn't mean that you know how to utilize that diversity. Correct. So, and and that that is for sure the case, and that's one of the things we actually do see. So, one of the themes in the book, of course, is that we know that most innovation is not the result of some genius having an aha moment. Rather, right. most innovation innovation is the result of, you know, a collection of people who have diverse points of view and expertise. Sort of trying working together in a particular way that allows them to come up with more innovative solutions. And one piece of that, one of the capabilities required, is what we refer to, and others have referred to as creative abrasion. This idea that we create a marketplace of ideas through debate, you know, amongst people who have their own diverse slices of genius, their own diverse points of view. But I know that the other research on diversity tells us or a lot of the research on diversity tells us that what you usually see with diverse groups is they either figure out how to embrace that diversity and they do better in terms of problem solving or they don't at all and they do worse. Right. It's very rare that they fall in the middle in right. terms of performance. Right. Well, and you you do link uh, innovation to companies thriving. You, you make the statement those yes. firms that can innovate constantly will thrive. Those that yes. do not or cannot will be left behind. And that's the research that all of my, my, a lot of my colleagues, you know, economists, et cetera, have documented that. So it's very critical to these days in particular to be able to innovate and to be agile enough to do it is, you know, as quickly, if you will, as you can. But uh, I, it, and it's yes, there's, I think that's real clear from all my strategy colleagues. That's a key right. piece of the puzzle. Now, the book starts out talking um, a, a lot about Pixar and mm-hmm. and how innovation is the creation of something both novel and useful, and mm-hmm. it can be large or small, incremental or breakthrough. Now, I don't tend to think of incremental change or incremental um, features or, or benefits of a product. I don't think about that and categorize it as innovation. So yep. talk to me about that. Well, the reason why we actually did that, what we did is we, you know, as I said, going to be an ethnographer here, we tried to look at what were we hearing and seeing in these organizations. And we had our own notions about how we were defining innovation before we started. But what we saw in these organizations is they were very broad and inclusive in their notion of innovation. And we think that's one of the reasons why they innovated so much, because it wasn't like it had to necessarily be viewed as special and only special people could do it. So they would talk about everyday innovation. In the one organization we looked at, HCL Technologies, they, they thought it was very important because, again, people, when they think about innovation and creativity, they sort of think about it, somebody out there. Am I one of those people? Do I know how to do that? So we found that when organizations had a very broad definition, they were more likely to see more innovation. So we decided it was best to adopt the practical kind of thing about it. And they could distinguish between the everyday and the breakthrough. But on the other hand, they didn't want people to think that, you know what, it's only going to count when you do the breakthrough. And also going back to what I said to you earlier, breakthrough doesn't happen all that often or it takes a long time to get it done. So we adopted the definition really that we saw the organizations adopt, which was a pretty inclusive one. Right. So it sounds like at Pixar that innovation is actually a component of their culture. Yes. Is that fair to say? It's a, it's a component in the sense the way we talk about it, as you know, because what we wanted to do, and I always try to do this, is to try to come up with a model for thinking for a person like yourself who's doing this stuff, you know, not an academic, that can help them figure out, am I focusing my time and attention on the right things? So at Pixar, what we said, or what we saw in these organizations, is they built an organization that was willing, and willing is about building the right culture. Mm-hmm. 
and ABLE is about building the right capabilities. So in spirit of just to answer in a, in a really, I want to just to keep this organized, for us what we would say is in their culture, they, had a, they valued bold ambition. They had appetite, an appetite that was much bigger than their current capabilities. And that's where for us, because you were trying to solve a bold, if a bold ambition, a bold problem, or take advantage of a bold opportunity, you must innovate to do that. So that's the way I would describe, yes, it is in their culture, but it goes back to their, their bold ambition. Right. Well, I and again, I love how practical this book is because it takes the theory, it maps it against these real companies, and then provides a, a bit of a roadmap. And, and uh, again, because I, I underline so many of these things, I'm just going to pull them out. Mm-hmm. One is that in leading innovation, these organizations that you observed paid particular attention to making sure that they were able to collaborate engage in discovery-driven learning, and making integrative decisions, which I'm going to ask you to define in a minute. But yep. um, one of the things, and I, you talked about it, about your childhood and, and you know, about the, the circumstance of moving around a lot. And I wasn't from a military family, but my dad was a pastor. And, mm. um, you know, uh, in my uh, – in the um, – uh, denomination that we were a part of, you either stayed in a church forever or you moved every five years, and we were part of the five-year club, right? Uh-huh. So you talked about intellectual curiosity. You didn't exactly use those words, but but about being curious, and and I, I really believe that that, for me, was born of that uh, necessity to assimilate into a new environment yes. every few years. And, and it was during my formative years, of course. We moved January 25th in my first grade year mm-hmm. and in my seventh grade year and in my freshman year. Same mm. day, each of those three times. Goodness. So, yeah, that date has special memory for me. But um, at any rate, moving the first day of second semester <laughs> is probably one of the toughest things you'll ever do because everybody's and especially in the first year of each of the schools, right? So mm-hmm. for uh, grade school, middle school, and high school. And um, so being curious and being able to assimilate and, you know, really discovery-driven dis- learning comes mm-hmm. from being able to manage that amount of change. So um, we'd just love to hear about, uh, especially about this, uh, integrative decision making mm-hmm. and and the discovery uh, driven learning. I think everybody understands what collaboration is, but you know uh, you can certainly chime in on that as well. Yeah, so the three capabilities I just talked about one of them, the creative abrasion. So it's a certain kind of collaboration because collaboration is one of those words like teamwork, right? It means right. a lot of different things. So what we saw in terms of the kind of collaboration we saw amongst these diverse parties or these individuals with their own slice of genius, their own point of view, was that they actually knew how to engage in debate. So the collaboration, when you saw it at work, it might be very heated, very passionate, lots of, because what you see is that you actually in these organizations want to amplify, not minimize difference. Mm -hmm. And so not only are people very good in the collaboration at actively listening and inquiring, of course, no organization is perfect or whatever, but very good at that. They're also very good at advocating because it is a marketplace of ideas. There is a competition. So creative abrasion is a particular kind of collaborative problem solving. The second one, discovery-driven learning, is really about what we refer to as creative agility, that once you get this, you know, this sort of portfolio of ideas, pretty robust ideas through this creative abrasion, then you need to test and refine those ideas. 
And there what you see is most innovation is not the result of – you can't really kind of plan to innovate. Um, mm-hmm. What you do is you kind of act and you discover what the answers are. So it's very much like in a mini, it's not accidental that there's a lot of focus on design thinking these days, that basically you act your way, you, you do a test, you do a prototype, you test, you get the information back, you refine it, you then you know take, you adjust and you go do the next test. So that is what discovery-driven learning is. It's not planning your way to the future. It's acting your way and learning to the future. And the third capability is creative resolution. And this is about how you make decisions. So most innovations are not completely new. They're often the combinations of old ideas or reconfiguration of old ideas to solve new problems or address new opportunities. So once you get what you see is if you don't have a way of making decisions that will allow you to do sort of both-and kind of decision-making as opposed to either-or, there's a winner and a loser, you don't get those combinations, those new combinations as much. So in really a lot of the examples, I I got to spend a day with Roger Martin, which was great, because I'm going to go back up and spend some more time with him. You sort of see how these opposable ideas, how do you get those ideas and bring them together, because that's often what's happening with innovation. And so these organizations know how to make decisions that way. And so consequently, what you see is they're not organizations where people are going to just compromise because, you know, are going to go along to get along. And they don't allow one group to dominate. They don't let the bosses dominate. They don't let the experts dominate. They actually know how to do decision-making in a way that's more inclusive and patient, but also clear, where they can combine ideas. Because you can go through the first two. You can do the creative abrasion. You can do the testing. And then in the end, if, you know, someone's going to select and you're not going to be able to actually use all that knowledge that's come out then and don't have a decision process that allows for that, you're not going to get the innovation either. Right, and you, you actually gave an example of that, of, of a, a, I believe it was a project at Google, uh-huh. where they looked at uh, either completely overhauling what they had mm-hmm. or building on what they had. So starting, yep. starting with a blank sheet of paper. And, uh, you know, it could have been set up that, that one of the teams won and one of the teams lost, as you said, but that, that's mm-hmm. not how it played out. No, and it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a long story to describe, so I won't go through the whole story. But basically, what when we have, what we always forget when you're talking about knowledge-driven businesses, which is fundamentally what we have a lot these days, the knowledge is in a person's head. So as these both of these teams worked for, really, it's kind of like running parallel experiments, two different pr- approaches, one more revolutionary, one more evolutionary. At some point, you know, the, the website's getting a little wobbly, and you got to do something. So you got to choose one of these 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 right. options. And the other thing, as you as you know, then that particular story, one team was when they knew they needed to come up with a new storage system for for YouTube, for instance. They didn't say you you team go over there and you do it. You're the people who know how to do it best and do it for us. Instead, what they did is they said, let's see spontaneously what ideas come up from bottom up, right, about how to handle this. And two mm-hmm. different ideas came up. They then played out those ideas, did the prototyping, et cetera. And then when they picked the one. That to be used at that moment because now we need it. We need something. But the other, the, the other team that quote in a way didn't win. Their their ideas were not lost in all that learning. Instead, they were, if you will, were adopted by the new team that was working on that next generation. And those ideas ended up being utilized and really helping solve the next problem. So that kind of putting together of of ideas really, and then when, you know that combination of okay, we're doing it this way now, we're, this new team has joined the other team, they've come up with another solution that's really a new kind of combination of ideas to do the next, to deal with the next thing that we have to do in scaling this, this website. And that's the way that um, Bill and his colleagues actually addressed keeping that website you know, 
scaling that website at the pace they needed to scale it. Because one of the reasons why Google has been able to be so successful is that they've actually been able to build that infrastructure to deal with all the new business ideas they've actually brought in to us. And other organizations haven't been so successful at that. Well, and again, they they have created a culture. And and again, when I first uh, jumped on the phone this morning, uh, you and Patty were discussing the uh, the culture and and the feeling when you walk into Pixar and I've been, I haven't been to Pixar but I've been mm-hmm. to Google's uh, headquarters and, and to the campus out there and and I've gone to their think uh, meetings they they do one specifically for the travel industry mm-hmm. and the the culture there is is just really phenomenal so you know I know we're going to talk a little bit about culture and community and and leaders actually laying out the things that are necessary for uh, setting up that culture of willingness to innovate. So why don't why don't we jump into talking about community? And I know in the book uh, there was some discussion about Volkswagen and in mm-hmm. the community aspect of innovation. Yeah, and you know one of the things that I we, I also uh, want to be careful about is that sometimes when we think about innovation, again we do think um, maybe immediately about the Pixars, the Googles, or whatever, and many people will say to me, well, I don't work in that kind of company. In some ways, right. Internet companies do have a bit of an advantage because it's easier to get feedback, et cetera, and certain exactly. manufacturing companies, Yeah, you et can't do A-B testing on a car. It's <laughs> a little, well, you can do a little bit. It's a little, it's a little trickier kind of process, but they yeah. are also becoming much more agile. So I think that what we did see is that to make to make sure that people are willing, the one thing that actually, if I can mention Ed Catmull again, who's an unbelievable leader, and you know, not only has he helped build Pixar, but obviously there's been a lot written about him lately as turning around Disney. So those of you who are looking at Frozen or you know buying Frozen merchandise, you know, they turned it around. So this is a man who knows how to build an innovative yes. organization and knows how to turn around one, right? So one of the things that he says is, Linda, we always forget how emotionally and intellectually taxing it is to do truly innovative work. This is probably the breakthrough in that we're talking about here. It's really hard. And even though it's exhilarating, it's hard. So what you need to do is you need to make it worthwhile for people to engage in this effort together. Because also collaborating is not easy. Creative abrasion is not easy. All of the things we were just talking about. So the culture has to be one that supports and makes us want to do this work. So at the heart of the culture, we ended up using the word we saw a community culture evolve in in these organizations because you feel a part of a community and the purpose, what the leaders do who lead innovation, is they don't so much provide vision, but what they do provide is they help us really define what our our, uh, collective identity is. Why are we together? Who are we? And at the heart of these, these communities is some sense of purpose. What is it we're trying to do together? And, and and because we really care about that purpose, it's worth our doing the hard work. So one of the people that we only wrote a little bit about was actually, if you don't mind, I'm just thinking about, it was a woman named Mrs. Mrs. Kim, who runs Sungju Kim, who, among other things, owns the MCM brand, and she's a luxury brand person. So she got in the luxury brand business mm-hmm. in part because she women, we all know that Asian women, are who many of the luxury brand companies are sort of focused on, certainly in the fashion industry. And so she's in that business of selling, you know, us expensive handbags and things. And one of the things, the reason she got into it is not so much, it's because women, how women define their identity in part is shaped by luxury. And she wanted to make sure that an Asian woman 
was help was in that mix helping to shape that luxury brand industry because it was going to impact how young Asian women and older Asian women too, of course, actually experienced themselves. So she introduced luxury brands years ago to Korea and has always been very successful in that space. So that's the purpose. So yeah, I'm in the I'm in the handbag business on the one hand, if you will. Right. But I'm in that business because it's about how women are going to see themselves. And I'm using her language. I don't want women to see themselves as being concubines. I want them to see themselves as empowered individuals. So the pricing of her goods, how they're made, how they're advertised, all of it is to this purpose. Now the question I had and in terms of the community, that purpose is at the heart of it. When you ask the Italian and British you know, men who work with her because she's an unbelievable brand builder, they'll say, I came to the company to build the brand, but you know, once I got in here, the purpose really does begin to matter to me a lot about what I'm doing and how I think about it. So that purpose defines the community. And then we found a set of values and what we refer to as rules of engagement about how you're supposed to interact and think together when you're working on things together that really support the kind of hard work associated with doing innovation. So, I mean, I can spell out what those are. As I said, bold ambition was one of them. But at the heart of the sense of community is some common purpose that defines why we're together that makes it worthwhile for us to do this hard work together. Right. And then you have to take uh, that and create rules of engagement and make sure that those values are clearly articulated for that to work. So then once you've created that willingness to innovate, then creating the ability and the infrastructure. Uh, And you've already talked about some of these things, such as creative abrasion. Um, And and you mentioned agility, and I I love this notion of creative agility. And you use it as as an example in this chapter of the book, uh, Philip Justice at eBay. Yes, so and I, I and, or else we could we could actually also use to some extent. You mentioned Volkswagen, which I'm realizing I didn't didn't talk about. Mm-hmm. But yes, so what we saw, so eBay. I studied eBay probably almost from uh, the first months that Meg Whitman was there until she left. And we particularly looked at eBay Germany, which was considered by many people at eBay to be the, one of the most, or if not the most, innovative piece of of eBay. And what they did there in terms of the agility is, again, this issue of being able to test ideas. And you know eBay, of course, when it started, was about community and about collectors. And that's how they started. They now obviously do other things with us. But just it's sort of interesting if you look at how they even built their whole business model. But the thing that they did there is that they knew how to, and now more organizations do this, but they were one of the first, first to really get good at this, how to do that prototyping and testing with their community, i.e. with their customers that they called their community, to get feedback and then make those adjustments quickly. So what they did is they knew how to do design rigorous enough experiments, but quick enough experiments, you know, quick and dirty rigorous experiments to learn with their community to come up with the kinds of services that community wanted. And when you do that, then you can you, you become much more agile. And frankly, one of the real advantages, and you've said you've done a lot of startups, and I know you have looking at your background, is in these organizations, there's not a real clean distinction between executing and innovating because you're doing it with the customer. The, yes. It's very customer-centric. So at Volkswagen, one of the things that the person we studied, Luca DeMeo, who we met him first at Fiat, and he's known for having rejuvenated the Fiat 500, he was one of the first people in marketing, marketing and sales, if you will, to understand that you do design 
with the customer. You include them in the process as you're doing it, and you speed up and you shorten the time at which you're making the car. Therefore, you're much more likely you know, to get the car out at a time when people are going to want to buy what you've done as opposed to doing it in a very linear fashion. So what you see in these organizations in terms of the agility is that you can do things fast. And then when he went to Volkswagen, which is where we described when we met him at first at Fiat, and then he's at Volkswagen, now we're studying him now that he's actually at Audi, which is obviously still part of the whole group, but he's left the, the brand, the Volkswagen brand, he's now at Audi. Is right. you, if you can speed things up 50%, the advantage of that, and he says it very explicitly, that speed is important because then you'll learn faster, you'll get that learning in, you'll adjust faster, and then you'll be able to be respond more and be more competitive in the market. And it comes from actually doing that design thinking with the with the customer, you know, mm-hmm. as is as a part of the mix. So at Volkswagen what they're doing now is actually they they have decided that in part their battleground for innovation is going to be around sustainability, which ties very much to the purpose of Volkswagen because Volkswagen right. is the people's car and sustainability goes back to their basic DNA. And a lot, and as you may know, there's been a uh, an Audi, a driverless Audi that's been moving around Nevada for a few years now. Actually, I think maybe even before the Google car, and mm-hmm. th- because they've been so sustainability oriented, but they've been learning along the way, and you want to do it fast. And yes. that's what creative agility is about. And and, and again, I and, know and, you already mentioned the creative resolution part of things um, as well. But if you could just tie the three together, because these these three components—creative abrasion, creative agility, and creative resolution—are the components of creating that ability for your organization to innovate. Even if they are willing, without these things, they really can't put it into practice. Yes. Let me see if I can. So the 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 dilemma that one of the things that so related to they they are all, you know it's funny when you, we we can, they are three separate capabilities but they actually are happening in an iterative way <laughs> iterative mm-hmm. way so it's kind of hard to really separate them out in some ways so one of the things that you do when you're doing this experimenting when you're being agile and you're learning at some point as a leader you have to help the group understand enough we've discovered enough it's time to you know stop do whatever going back to the google example that we used so as you also saw in the eBay example, there were all these experiments. In fact, people had so many ideas, too many ideas, they had to de- develop a governance structure for deciding what they're going to explore and what they're not going to explore and when they're going to stop exploring and start you know, doing, if you will, executing mm-hmm. or just picking. So what you see, and that's why it's hard to talk about them somewhat separately, is as you're going through this process of learning, at some point it's good enough, right? And going back to their ambition, though, they have very bold ambition. They really like stuff to be excellent, that's the, the value we have about it because our customer right. expects that from us, then it, what you see is that, as we talked about earlier, the example we used at Google or even at, at – at, um, I'm trying to think now of, the, of an example from even the eBay example where they they ended up coming up with a couple of ideas that looked like – I can't think of I'm, – I'm, I'm, I have to apologize to you. I'm blocking on what would be a good example. But what often would happen at eBay is when they would – experiment and learn something, they would sort of see that we could combine this idea with that other idea that came out of that other experiment and we can meet our customer's need because we can do both of these things. Interesting. And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming up with a – there was something around one of their Christmas promotions that I'm, I'm just blocking on the specifics. Maybe it will come back to me. Don't let me waste time on it. Or even the, <laughs> or even the uh, Google example that we were talking about, it's not as if, yes, we can use parts of what we've learned now to solve the problem now, but the problem's not completely solved. We still have these other issues to work on. So you join with what you've learned in this group. You join this other group, and then we're going to come up with a solution to deal with. I forget what happened right after YouTube, 
Right. Those are so they're now so standard to us. Um, they had another thing that they were going to be working on that actually some of what they had come up with and solved, they'd been working on to solve the problem of YouTube actually became quite relevant for solving the next kind of new business that Google was trying to add to the website. And right. partly because the part of the difference that it was not so, I mean, this may be more specific than you need, but part of the reason why those two different approaches came from those two different groups is that one group was actually sitting with the applications people, if you will, that right. were working on some new things, and the other group was actually still sitting with the search group. So again, because they had different background experiences and who they're talking to the most, it partly explained why they had come up with their different approaches. Right. And so it turned out that what the the one that quote got selected that you read about in the book was the one that the group that was working closest with search, interestingly enough. But the revolutionary group coming out of the applications group, the next application, what they had learned was really relevant for taking the website to its next generation, if that makes mm. sense. I hope I haven't been too it confusing. It does. No, no. It, yep. it makes tremendous sense. And and this whole concept of of pairing people and uh, specifically pairing groups that have different perspectives and ideas, we uh, a few weeks ago interviewed uh, a guy, uh, Richard Sheridan, who wrote a book mm. called Joy Incorporated. And yep. Richard was talking about his firm, which happens to be a technology development firm, and how they pair, uh, they actually physically pair two people with one computer, and they are set together to solve, uh, you know, a customer or problem or, or mm-hmm. to come up with an innovative solution. And the, that pair works together, even though one may have a background in JavaScript and another, you know, in a completely different language set. And, you know, they they take their different backgrounds and come up with the best possible solution. But they don't stop there. The next week, they switch pairs. And then mm-hmm. that person has to teach the next person why they made the decisions and what they were doing. And then that person adds in their creative genius. And, in yes. fact, it was uh, – you know the this whole issue of collective genius and and taking different perspectives they've actually institutionalized it mm-hmm. um in a really creative way and and their whole goal and and the title of the book being joy incorporated is yes. to create an atmosphere of joy for the employees because they're constantly learning and then also to create joy for their customers who delight in using uh their application software so i thought that was a very very interesting approach to Yes, I'll have to look at it. We did actually see a fair number. Of, I guess those are called sort of two in a bo- two in the box arrangements. We didn't end up writing. <laughs> yes. We didn't write a lot about that. I don't think we even wrote about it at all if we did in the book. But we definitely did see two in a box arrangements in a, in a number of the different contexts we looked at. So mm-hmm. I think for exactly the reasons you're describing, and also appreciating that one point of view, you know, one kind of expertise is not going to be enough to solve that problem. So. Right. As as I what one of the other things we're researching now is this whole business of creating these ecosystems and these partnerships because whole organizations may not have within that organization we don't have the capability to solve exactly. the problem we have to partner with someone else and so you there we've also seen some two in the box uh, right. you know arrangements where uh, very hard stuff to do and that's one of the things we're looking at going forward you know who's really good at at, at well, really we're creating gonna be, those ecosystems. we're going to be taking a version of that in in my company, and again, I, oh. I've been working on uh, a really 
game change, and I hate that word game changing in, in this context, but a, a technology that will really turn my industry on its head because it's always wow. done things a particular way. Mm-hmm. But we are, are actually taking it from being an idea and what has been a very expensive hobby for me over the last two years of, <laughs> of investing all of this money and developing this technology. We're actually moving into this phase where we're going to be a company and we're oh, setting wow. up offices here in Tampa that are actually going to have what I will describe as little living rooms. I've been working for the last seven years in my living room, or actually in my mm. family room, mm-hmm. uh, but having my feet up and sitting on a couch and, and whenever I can, you know, bringing people in to talk to because I get very tired of working alone. But I'm going to institutionalize what has worked so well for me, and that's creating these little environments. Some of them mm. will look like you're at Starbucks with the high top tables and chairs, and others will be living rooms that you know have kind of a, a beach motif, and another mm-hmm. one, you know, will be like this library motif. And because I believe that where you work and and what you surround yourself, and how you invite people into that work environment, so it isn't just pairs. It yep. will be you know sometimes a person working alone and then calling in other people into their room where they have have decided to work. And so we we are going to do some experimenting of new office environments because I think – and also because we are an ecosystem today. We don't Mm -hmm. operate alone. We've got other companies that we work with. We uh, actually outsource our our design and uh, outsource our development. And but those people are a part of our innovation ecosystem. And that was what I was where I was going to go next. Oh, uh, okay. Collective Genius 2.0, inventing yes. the future. You talk about convulsing. Uh, cultivating the innovation ecosystem and and you use the example of of Larry uh Smar and and Amy Schulman who are from yes. different companies but uh collaborated together. Yeah so so Larry Larry Smar is the head of a group called CalIT2 which is a really an academic I guess an institute in a way at the University of California San Diego. So as you probably know San Diego is considered to be one of those creative environments or a very creative ecosystem for biotechnology and nanotechnology. And part of that is that has not happened in an accidental way. It's been studied by many different uh, innovation researchers, and, and, and actually I think Michael Porter also studied it as an example of a competitive region where they very explicitly created an organization to do these private-public partnerships. So we looked at the university piece of this, you know, what, what this, how the university played in this mix of uh, the ecosystem of, of, of San Diego, and Larry was the one who led that. Now, Larry used to be, he was one of the, I guess he was one of the leaders who helped lead the teams that created the, the first supercomputers in Illinois, and he's known to be very good at knowing how to bridge across organizations and bring, create a sense of community amongst very diverse players. And uh, so we studied him, and actually the university, they that group is now, in fact, I, the truth in advertising, he's asked me, he asked me to join their advisory board after I finished all the work, so I have done that. And one of the things that I loved about working with them is a lot of their partners are now, for instance, are around the world. And they do very big projects because, as you well know, the problems or the opportunities we want to address nowadays are bigger than when a single organization. Absolutely. So they're doing a lot of work, for instance, with universities in Saudi Arabia where they're educating women and men engineers to mm-hmm. solve some of the, again, very big sustainability issues that are related to, you know, uh, to energy. 
working also with a very big global project to look at how we clean up the oceans, just fascinating work, and then doing work on nanotechnology, et cetera, to, to, do, to, study personal, to develop personalized medicine. Larry himself is apparently, there's been an article in the Atlantic and also I think in the New York Times, he is the most studied individual, and every part of his body is being monitored, you know, I guess 24-7. So that group, and on the how do you create an interdisciplinary, even academic group that cuts across the University of California system and works with businesses constructively to, to make sure that that region is, uh, is competitive is what he's been doing. The other project that we describe in the book, and because it is a public university, is they work with the firemen to figure out how they forecast where wild, wildfires are going to be. Again, so just addressing mm -hmm. what's necessary to get done. So you have these PhD, you know, scientists and technologists, and also they have humanists working with literally the firemen and firewomen to, to, to develop the systems necessary to deal with wildfires in San Diego. So these, the, we, cannot, we can't do this ourselves. We've got to work with other people. So to find, you know, PhD scientists who know how to work with fire, fire people is not right. the easiest thing. We don't really talk to each other enough. And Amy Schulman, on the other hand, we met Amy when she was at, uh, when she was actually a, a partner at DLA Piper and head of a head of one of the most successful litigation franchises in the world, literally. And we were studying there and how she built her franchise there. And then she became she went in house and became the general counsel for Pfizer. And the ecosystem we looked at there is that she ended up trying to, well, she did, they created a group, they basically got, all, you know, you can only imagine how many law firms work for Pfizer. But right. one of the things she wanted to do is to see, can we create, get our outside counsel to work in a more collaborative way together to come up with innovative solutions that will help us prevent legal problems and also address the ones that are going to come up and do it in a more cost-effective way. So got competitors to work in a much, much more collaborative way deeply build partnerships with the firm so they actually understand the issues of the firm, they have the relationships necessary to do that, cut, uh, I think they got down 19 firms for about 75% of the business, cut costs by 20% and got much, much better, you know, solutions to their their legal problems. What was also interesting, and just because, again, of our, who we're talking to here, one of the things that the community agreed to do the, of lawyers, and they were paid fixed fixed, not billable hours, but more fixed fees for this, Right. the whole governance structure. But one of the things that was also exciting is encourage this group to try to develop um, lawyers that were women and underrepresented minorities to get more lawyers in corporate law. Because across the 19 firms, they developed programs where they would give experiences to women and people from underrepresented minorities that they wouldn't couldn't get necessarily in one firm, but they agreed that across the 19, they should be able to get the mentoring in place, get mm. exposed to the right kinds of clients so that they could develop the talent, more diverse talent, because she's quite committed to that. So not only were they doing the legal work, but they really made, they began to make some progress with on issues of diversity. And I, I believe, and she didn't tell me this, but I'm, someone I think told me that M Amy was the highest paid corporate uh, woman pay litigator in the world. And, wow. and, and and she doesn't she does not measure her own success, you know, by how much money she made. I just want to be clear. In fact, she was considered to be quite generous in how she shared her when she was even a when she was a litigator, but this commitment to building a diverse workforce right. is one that she's had from day 1 and she wanted to make sure happened. So not only did these competitors 
competitive law firms share, you know, doing the work in ways proprietary, what used to be considered proprietary information they were now sharing with each other so they could actually right. solve problems better. But they also began to share the talent and agreed to, you know, it really matters that we'd be in to develop more diverse talent and there are not a whole lot of, you know, women or underrepresented minorities who are right. working for these firms. So they did, they did both. It was very, well, very impressive. So, yep. you, you know the target audience for this show, although we do have men who do listen, but our yes. tar- target audience uh, are executive women. So where will we find tomorrow's leaders of innovation is really the final topic of the book. Yes. And if I could, if you, you could talk just a little bit about Jacqueline uh, Novogratz. Yes, so Jacqueline is, uh, she obviously, well, not not obvious, but she's, she's a CEO of something called the Acumen Fund, which was one of our earliest right. social enterprise organizations, and a lot of her own work has been with women. It had been beforehand, et cetera. Jacqueline and I got to know each other. Actually, I was a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation, and she was something called a Warren, I think a Warren Weaver Fellow, and they were brought in to be the disruptors and the troublemakers and to ask us hard questions, and she was one of the ones who did that. And she understood that maybe there are some more hybrid kinds of organizations we need that are both, quote, businesses and also have social, you know, are very focused on social, solving social problems. Right. A lot of her own work and the organization's work has been on, with women in, in around the world because we know that women are very important to the development. And when you're doing development work, in other, you know, in emerging countries or markets, whatever you want to call them, the women play a particular role there. So what we were interested in is how do you develop the leadership that who can actually do this kind of work? And what she began to do, it's also more of an ecosystem approach, they began to understand that if you really want to change what's happening for women in a particular country, then it may be you need to have a regional approach to developing the leadership. Just to have one lone individual who knows how to do this stuff is not enough. Let's do our development of these innovative leaders as in a region together across the sectors so they can support each other as they're trying to address whatever it might be, you know, better water, better health, better education. So that kind of approach is what we studied with her. And I mentioned Mrs. Mrs. Kim, who also uh, a lot, she has men and women working in her organizations, but she works in many countries where you don't see very many senior women executives, frankly. Right. And she does have those women executives in her company and she also does has um, one of the things that she she was a woman who was divorced herself and it was a single mother, which is not easy if you're in Korea, because it's not a place where that's uh, it's still sort of stigma associated with those things. And she does have a fair number of women who are single mothers in her company, and right. in her and also if you look at who makes her bags and so forth, she relies very much on having women be the people who are helping to manufacture these these luxury goods mm-hmm. and doing it in a way that addresses some of their developmental needs in their particular communities. So I think we do know that there are men and women out there who want to do make this world a better place. Innovation is about trying to improve things. Usually people are trying to do stuff better for you know some group of people. And I do think that what we find is these leaders are very centered. They know who they are. They know what they care about and their purposes. And they build, are building organizations that um, you will help them meet those needs. And going back to what you're saying you're doing, what we also know, and it's interesting what, why I'm being asked to talk about this research, often it's about innovation specifically, right? Mm-hmm. But the other piece is about 
I do a lot of work in emerging markets. I'm getting ready to spend a couple of weeks over in uh, the UAE, for instance, and then I'll be going to Singapore to work with some new companies that are being set up there, some startups. But what we know is that the millennials, they want to, what they want is they want to work in organizations where they can, they will have the opportunity to learn so that they can contribute and have an impact in an organization whose purpose they really care about. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been doing research on that anyway, and that's what we see with millennials. So I, I find that, interestingly enough, I'm being asked to come talk about collective genius as much about, by people who are trying to figure out talent issues, how do we attract yeah. and retain the talent we need, as I am about you know, how do we build innovative organizations. And they're very interconnected. And one of the leaders <coughs> said to me, Linda, mm-hmm. You know what? People don't want to follow you to the future, even if you have a wonderful vision or whatever. They want to co-create that future with you. They want to be involved in the co-creation process, right? So where are we going to find tomorrow's leaders? I think the message we want to leave about that is that, you know what, there's a lot of potential out there, and what you see in these organizations, going back to your first question, why such a broad definition of innovation? Because there's more potential. There are more slices of genius out there than we realize. And there's all this potential. There are these stylistic invisibles. There are these demographic invisibles where we're not, we're not seeing these people as being where innovation can come from. But guess what? These innovative leaders, they get. There's a lot of potential, and they know how to unleash it, going back to amplifying these differences. And those people are very eager to co-create with you. They don't want to follow you. Mm. And that's a very different stance from many leaders in many cultures to take, that they're not necessarily being followed, they're helping, they're a part of this co-creation process. With, I'm thinking that's another book, Linda. I, yes, I tell you that what, is what, I, yeah. I want to I know the outcome of that one, because yes. I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective, being uh, the CEO and founder uh, of a company that is completely dedicated you know, to innovation, mm-hmm. is that I know I'm not a great manager, uh, nor do mm-hmm. I choose to be. I, I hire people who are really good at the people side of things. Mm-hmm. But being able to still, um, you know, be able to influence them and not to separate myself, uh, you know, mm-hmm. from from the workforce and to be able to have them do that collaboratively, I, I think is one of the breakthroughs that I need personally, uh, you know, in this next stage of of my recreation uh, if you will and and I'm recreating uh both the company and the product and and myself uh mm-hmm. in in the uh in the whole process. So Linda, we have uh, gone way over the amount of time we would take from you and I always want to be uh, respectful of that, but it has been fabulous and an hour has just completely blown by. <laughs> Uh, but I just want to thank you so much for taking your Friday to be with us and sharing about Collective Genius, the art and practice of leading innovation. Again, our guest today has been Linda Hill. And, Linda, I do hope that if you uh, if you do write up some of this other research, even if it doesn't make it into a book, we would love to come back and talk about the board topic with you. Uh, again, we're starting in a few weeks a series on uh, women board positions and uh, for those who uh, aspire to be on a board, what do they have to go through and, and companies that don't have women on their boards, why, do, why would they want to? And mm-hmm. uh, so it's going to be a fascinating series. And I'm looking forward to listening. So I appreciate this opportunity and uh, really appreciate that uh, 
you were willing to spend some time with me. And all the best, and I'm looking forward to I travel so much, I'm very eager to see and learn more about this innovation you're working on. Well, great. As soon as we've got the office set up, uh, I will definitely invite you to come visit us. Uh, one of the things, uh, you know, if you look into – uh, Rich Sheridan and what he has done at Joy Incorporated. His his company is actually called Menlo in- Innovations, mm-hmm. and they actually I, I want to say they're making 15% of their annual revenues on people coming in to tour and train on their methodologies wow. to come and see their facility. And and I can see that happening with us. And and in fact, we're setting up an incubator where 10% of our revenues. Uh, our top-line revenues will go into an innovation fund to help early-stage companies that have some adjacency to what we're developing that mm-hmm. will have them come in, work with us, learn the methodologies, and we'll actually invest in them as well. So it's wow. it's a, a new kind of incubator, um, but very, very focused on our, our core purpose, which is mm-hmm. uh, you know furthering innovation in general and then very specifically in this area of the travel industry that we're working in. Well, I can't wait. So thank you, and you have a lovely rest of the day. Okay, you too, Linda. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye.